Welcome to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Megan Chamberlain, a third-year medical student at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine and the producer for today's episode on status epilepticus. The episode will be hosted by Dr. Bob Belfer, an attending physician in the emergency department at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. We are joined today by two national experts in the field. Our first guest is Dr. Jim Chamberlain, an attending physician in the emergency department at Children's National Hospital and professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine at George Washington University. Our second guest is Dr. Dennis DeLugos, a pediatric neurologist at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a professor of neurology and pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. We'll be focusing on recent updates in the initial management of pediatric status epilepticus in the emergency department. So without further ado, let's get to it. Thank you, Meg, for that introduction. And welcome, Jim and Dennis, to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Jim, you have two direct connections to our podcast. Your daughter, Meg, is producing this episode, and by the way, is doing a great job. And a few years ago, when I was completing my Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship at Children's National Medical Center, you were my fellowship director. And relevant to this topic that we're going to be discussing, Jim, I remember helping enroll patients in the ED when you were studying intramuscular midazolam versus intravenous diazepam in patients who presented in status. You worked under the mentorship of Dr. Hezzy Weissman, who now serves as the Director of Pediatric Emergency Medicine at Schneider Children's Medical Center in Israel. Any recollection of that study, Jim? Oh yeah, that was my first uh, RCT, randomized control trial. It was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, midazolam really is a wonder drug and uh, it had recently started to be used for status and it was, uh, it was a nice little study. We only enrolled 22 patients, but it was fun. Okay, we're gonna talk more about those drugs shortly, uh, but before we delve into our topic today, status epilepticus, I would like our listeners to learn a little bit more about each of you. So Dennis, first, what professional achievement are you most proud of and why? So I think the achievement I'm most proud of is being part of a group that has managed to reduce the placebo response rate in anti-epileptic drug trials. If your placebo response rate is in the 20 or 30% range, it's very hard to uh, make progress. And we've managed to reduce our placebo response rates to more like 5 or 10% over the last few years. That's great. Jim, how about you? What professional achievement are you most proud of and why? I would say I'm most proud of uh, my mentorship. I've had a really great time mentoring young faculty and fellows, and um, it's really great to watch them grow up and become productive adults. And Jim, speaking personally, I think I'm a beneficiary of your mentorship, so uh, I thank you for that. Uh, Dennis, back to you. What's your favorite disease? What's your favorite diagnosis? Well, my favorite diagnosis is uh, a diagnosis something like uh, normal baby movements, uh, which we see a lot of in child neurology. But uh, the favorite diagnosis that actually would be considered a, a neurological diagnosis might be what we now call self-limited Rolandic epilepsy of childhood. Used to be called benign Rolandic epilepsy, but it's not entirely benign because there are some learning differences. But what's encouraging about it is the seizures are guaranteed to go away, guaranteed to go away by puberty. Uh, and um, that is uh, very good news for all involved when that happens. Great, Dennis. Jim, how about you? Favorite disease and or diagnosis to make in the emergency department? 
Well, I, of course, Status Epilepticus is my favorite, but a close uh, second right up there is uh, DKA. I love managing diabetic ketoacidosis. It's so complex. There's so much going on and uh, it's really fun. I always like a little bit of history of our topic. Uh, and as a segue, I'm just going to list a few famous people uh, for both of you. And I'd like to uh, ask you a little trivia. What do all these people have in common? Uh, little Wayne, President Theodore Roosevelt, uh, singer Neil Young, singer Prince, and the Russian writer Dostoevsky. Do either of you have any idea what all of those have in common? So unless it's a trick question, I'd say um, epilepsy. Correct. So all of them had epilepsy. And believe it or not, Dostoevsky, in many of his books, wrote about characters who had epilepsy. Uh, and that leads us into the, uh, the history of status. It was first described in 600 BC on Babylonian tablets. And it was pretty much largely ignored until the 19th century when certain treatments were used, such as amyl nitrate, inhalation chloroform, rectal digitalis, and even phlebotomy. Dennis, the history of therapeutics for status becomes more relevant in the early 1900s. Tell us about that. Yes, so the modern era of seizure treatment uh, begin, the modern medication era begins with phenobarbital in the 1920s, and then phenytoin uh, in the late 1930s. And as I imagine we'll discuss, those old drugs are still very much used today. And now we have probably 35 or 40 anti-epileptic drugs, and we'll talk about the ones that have the unique profiles that make them beneficial for status. For, for Jim and I, if a child comes into the ER season, at least the way I define it, Jim, I'll defer to you, that's status epilepticus to me. That's the ER definition. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. If they've already been seizing, they get to the emergency room, they're, they're in status. It's been more than five minutes, yeah. Dennis, educate us from a neurology standpoint. What is the definition uh, in the literature uh, of status epilepticus that you go by? Well, that definition has changed recently. The traditional definition that I was raised on was status epilepticus was a single seizure lasting 30 minutes or longer, or a cluster of seizures without return to baseline lasting 30 minutes or longer. And um, that was changed to a stepwise definition of status, where what's called established status epilepticus uh, begins after five minutes of continuous seizure activity. Uh, and then if that persists uh, for a period of time, it becomes refractory status and then super refractory status. So the good news about that change in definition is it reinforces that treatment should begin after five minutes for most convulsive seizures with seizures with bilateral motor activity. The, but the other news about that change in definition is it doesn't mean that brain injury starts after five minutes. So I think the definition is good from a therapeutic point of view, but boy, has it even further raised anxiety around seizures including five, six-minute seizures. So I think we just have to be mindful that uh, the biology behind seizures hasn't changed. You actually have to seize for some time before there is actual brain injury. Five minutes just means, uh, let's start treating this seizure if we haven't already. And we'll, we'll be talking about therapeutics momentarily. Is it common for status to be the first presentation 
of a child who's going to go on to develop epilepsy, or is this not the case? Dennis? It's certainly not uncommon. Uh, as many as 20% of first seizures uh, in children are status. And uh, that figure assumes I'm talking about unprovoked seizures. If you include febrile status epilepticus, then that number would be much higher, uh, which actually brings up an important point with, with everything with status, qualifiers are important. Are we talking about provoked status, typically febrile status, or are we talking about unprovoked status? And then I think for this discussion, we're going to be talking about convulsive status epilepticus, bilateral motor seizures with impairment of awareness. That's true. Is status epilepticus a true emergency? And what I mean by that is, is it important to stop the seizures as long as possible? Should treatment begin, like you said, Dennis, within five minutes? Uh, Jim, why don't you take that one first? Uh, is it truly a neurologic emergency? Should we stop the seizures as soon as possible? And why? So as Dennis mentioned, um, that the thinking on this has evolved. Uh, when I was a resident, we used to think that it was okay to let people seize for 15, 20 minutes, and they would fizzle out on their own. But, you know, there's more and more evidence from animal studies. And in fact, there's some human studies with MRI data now that you shouldn't allow patients to seize. First, the longer they seize, the more refractory they are to treatment. For example, higher doses of benzodiazepines are required uh, after uh, seizing for longer. Second, you're in a situation where you've got uh, your brain is metabolizing substrate at probably about seven times normal. At the same time, your muscles are stealing the blood supply uh, you're not breathing too well. So based on first principles, I, I, I would say it's not a good idea to allow children to continue to seize. Right. And Dennis, how long is too long? So that it actually depends. Uh, I, I agree with, uh, with Jim's comments. I think the key reason to treat early is earlier treatment is more effective, first and foremost. And the likelihood of a seizure becoming prolonged increases dramatically after five minutes. Most seizures stop within two minutes. If your seizure hasn't stopped within two minutes, then another reasonable percentage stop at five. But if you're still seizing at five minutes, the chances of it becoming a 30-minute seizure are quite high. So I think there are very clear therapeutic reasons to begin treatment early, always with risk benefit in mind. Uh, I, I will say as a neurologist, we try to minimize discussion about brain injury from seizures because boy, does that add to the already overwhelming anxiety that comes with seizures and I think can lead to poor risk benefit decisions down the road. But that aside, there are plenty of therapeutic reasons to begin treatment of status early. Jim, you and I have taken care of dozens, if not hundreds of patients in the ER with status epilepticus. Uh, what are some of the pitfalls in management that you've seen, you've been part of, and some of the pearls of the management of status? One that I could think of is you're, you're so busy with the ABCs and ordering anti-epileptic drugs. Sometimes I'm 10, 15 minutes into a patient with status and I'm not sure the glucose was checked. Again, a thing that should be done right away. I'll whisper to one of our children's hospital Philadelphia nurses who are excellent, and uh, they whisper back to me, yes, Bob, the glucose is 85. We're okay there. So any pearls or pitfalls 
you know, globally speaking, that you have come across that you teach in the management of status epilepticus? So, so you bring up an important one, Bob. You need a you need a team approach. This is this is not one physician and one nurse. You're likely going to need someone at the head of the bed suctioning and and doing a jaw thrust to open the airway. Uh, you mentioned glucose. You've also got to think about sodium. You know, babies often get hyponatremic and you're not going to treat the status effectively until you address the sodium and the glucose. So we do have rapid bedside testing for glucose and sodium, and I recommend it in every patient with status epilepticus. One thing that's uh, a little concerning to me is I've seen people, when they don't have IV access, reach for some Ativan or lorazepam and give it IM. And that is not an acceptable uh, treatment, in my opinion, for status epilepticus. The absorption of um, lorazepam and the intramuscular route is simply too slow. The peak occurs at about an hour, and it's not effective treatment. In contrast, midazolam uh, is excellent as an IM agent. And we're going to talk about all those agents when we move into the therapeutics uh, part of this podcast. Uh, again, I think, like you said, a team approach, Jim, and also more and more hospitals are into pathway development. And uh, if uh, our listeners want to go on the chop.edu website, uh, there is a chop pathway for status epilepticus that two of my colleagues in the ER, Joel Fine and Jane Lavelle, uh, helped to develop. In addition to Dennis, you were part of the team that developed the chop uh, pathway for status epilepticus. Uh, yes, I, I was a small part of a large team that that uh, developed that pathway. I, I will say that something that uh, I really like about the pathway, and uh, Bob, you you mentioned it in your comment about the glucose, is there's at least three things, very important things happening simultaneously with a patient in status. There are the ABCs, and is the patient stable? There's what's going on with the seizures? Have they stopped or not? And then there's the etiology. Because even though some status is idiopathic of unknown etiology, many times that's not the case. And thinking about etiology throughout the whole treatment pathway is is important. Excellent point, Dennis. Uh, Let's move on to therapeutics. So let's talk pre-hospital first. And let's talk about before the family, if they need to, calls 911. So Dennis, what anti-epileptic drugs are prescribed by neurologists? for the home management of status epilepticus? Well, talk about an answer that has changed quite recently. Uh, Before a few months ago, there was rectal diazepam uh, that comes as a prepackaged, easy to use gel that's been around for about 20 years. There is an older benzodiazepine clonazepam that comes as a dissolvable wafer And there is literally no good data to support its use, but it is a time-honored and apparently effective seizure rescue medicine to have a caregiver slip a a clonazepam wafer into the the patient's cheek. Uh, And then more recently, uh, FDA approvals and availability in the U.S. of a midazolam nasal spray and just on the heels of that, a diazepam nasal spray. So we now actually have three FDA-approved medicines for for out-of-hospital acute repetitive seizures, uh, rectal diazepam, nasal diazepam, and nasal midazolam, and then there's old-fashioned clonazepam wafers. 
And it's, if you had a choice, would you choose the intranasal midazolam or the intranasal diazepam? Uh, they've not been compared head to head. The practically nasal midazolam is approved down to age 12 years. Nasal diazepam is approved down to age six years. Neither medicine is um, inexpensive and payers know that. So it's been hard to get the intranasal midazolam approved in younger children. So I, I look at them as, um, I don't view a difference other than their age of uh, FDA approvals and insurance hurdles. So let's assume no medication was given uh, by the parents. 911 is called. Uh, there are some pre-hospital studies, Jim, uh, specifically the Rampart study, rapid anticonvulsant medications prior to arrival trial, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2012. Tell us a little bit about this pre-hospital study, Jim. Yeah, so that study was uh, headed up by uh, Robert Sobergleit out of the University of Michigan, and they used the uh, Neurologic Emergency uh, Treatment Trial Network, and they enrolled about 1,200 adults and children, and they allowed children down to an estimated weight of about 13 kilos, and they did something uh, I thought was pretty cool. They had a, a high-dose and a low-dose auto-injector, kind of like with EpiPen and EpiPen Jr., so for little kids, they gave the small dose, and for big people and adults, they gave the big dose. And they compared that to intravenous lorazepam. And uh, what they demonstrated uh, was that by the time patients arrived to the emergency department, uh, the midazolam group were more successful at having stopped their seizures. Uh, and they also stopped their seizures uh, more quickly because of the uh, intramuscular uh, uh, administration route. So I know, Jim, you're involved in, in the Washington, D.C. area with the EMS people. What is the protocol? Should they give intramuscular midazolam or should they attempt an IV or do both? Well, I think they should first, uh, given, given our first principles that we want to get treatment on board as fast as possible, uh, I think they should give intramuscular midazolam, get the treatment started. Uh, they can then, of course, look for an IV, but, but first get the uh, IM midazolam on board. It's a pretty unique drug. It has a nice ring structure that allows absorption rapidly, either intramuscularly or transmucosally. And then um, when it reaches physiologic pH in the bloodstream, it, the ring structure closes and then it becomes lipophilic and goes to the brain rapidly. So it's really a perfect drug for status epilepticus. And what percent of patients uh, presenting to your ER, Jim, have received some form of uh, anti-epileptic drugs prior to arriving in the ED, just a ballpark figure. So, so thankfully that num that proportion is increasing dramatically. It used to be very small proportion. Uh, there was concern about controlled substances on the ambulances and people giving IM shots in a moving vehicle, but um, we're upwards of 70 or 80% now of kids getting something before they arrive. So let's assume, uh, Either the patient did or did not get something pre-hospital. Uh, you get a call from the medics. They're coming in with a young child actively seizing. Jim, does your heart rate still go up when a child arrives in the ED actively seizing? No, not really. I've done it enough now that I'm pretty calm with it. Okay. And uh, Dennis alluded to earlier, there, you know, you're working on your ABCs, but you really have to do uh, a quick H&P and think of differential diagnoses, right? Because certain differential diagnoses require different treatments than the conventional anti-epileptic drugs uh, we're gonna talk about. 
What are some of those? We talked about hypoglycemia. Jim, you alluded to uh, hyponatremia. Uh, I guess you should look at the head, maybe make sure a shunt is not present. Uh, and any other diagnoses that sort of, you need to sort of make or consider in those first few minutes because it may change or alter medication administration. Sure. Um, I, uh, non-accidental trauma uh, is always a, a concern. So uh, some, some kids have to get to the CT scanner to find out how bad that is. Occasionally uh, with the newborn, you have to worry about calcium issues and um, you may need pyridoxine. So, so the patient comes in the ER, let's assume has not received any pre-hospital drugs. And let's assume that they don't have an IV. Okay, so again, what is your go-to drug in the ED now? Not pre-hospital setting, but in the ED in the patient who uh, does not have an IV in place. Jim? So for the reasons I stated above with, with the uh, design of the drug, uh, intramuscular midazolam is our go-to drug. And we give 0.2 milligrams per kilo, uh, which is uh, twice the IV dose. Okay, and let's assume, again, in many cases, especially at the places, Jim, that you and I and Dennis work, children's hospitals, most of those patients either come in with an IV or our nurses are very adept at getting IVs in them. Uh, a lot of textbooks on pediatric emergency medicine and emergency medicine, in addition to pathways in status epilepticus, recommend IV lorazepam as the first-line drug. Dennis, do you agree with the textbooks and the pathways, IV lorazepam, first-line? Yes. Okay. Uh, Jim, I'm going to sort of go back to you. You studied actually IV lorazepam with another agent uh, published in JAMA in 2014. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that study and your recommendation based on that? Sure. So that was a randomized controlled trial uh, with the intention of labeling uh, uh, um, lorazepam for the treatment of status epilepticus in kids. Uh, unfortunately, we, we didn't show much difference between diazepam and lorazepam, and it was designed as a superiority trial, so uh, the trial was not successful. But what we did find was that um, the lorazepam uh, patients took a lot longer to recover to baseline mental status. They were, they were snowed for uh, six to eight hours, whereas the diazepam group were mostly waking up in three to four hours. When you extend that, that line of thinking to midazolam, which we use all the time for anxiolysis and sedation, we know that kids recover from midazolam in about 30 or 40 minutes, maybe an hour. So for me, my go-to drug, even if I have an IV, and this is where I differ with the neurologist, I'll go with midazolam because I want the kid to stop seizing and then I want them to wake up because I don't want to have to see T-scan or LP them because they're not waking up. And I totally get lorazepam is longer acting and it's a great drug when you're going to admit someone to the hospital and you don't want to get woken up at midnight with more seizures. But in the ED setting, I think midazolam is the way to go. And is any comments on that? Uh, yes, that, that actually makes uh, perfect sense. Uh, and, and I think there's... Um, for, for, for the reasons Jim stated, uh, you will recover from midazolam more quickly. The neurology lore that, that led to the preference for uh, lorazepam was that there would be 
less chance of recurrent seizures after the shorter acting benzo would would wear off. And, uh, you know, perhaps diazepam sort of splits the difference uh, down down the middle. I, I think, I, and I'm actually looking at the CHOP status epilepticus pathway, which has in bold print uh, lorazepam. And, and you know, I, I think one, pick an option and go with it. I, I think uh, if if one hospital's pathway is midazolam, fine. If ours right now is lorazepam, fine. I think what's what would be confusing is consider three options, uh, you know, A, B, or C. So I, I'd like to think of it as we have a couple of good choices rather than one clearly better than the other. Okay, so you have your go-to benzodiazepine. How many doses of benzos should be given before A, ordering your second line therapy and then administering your second line anti-epileptic drug therapy? Jim? So this is where having a, a pathway is great because you can actually lay this out in, in, a, in an orderly time-based fashion. And um, generally speaking, you're going to want to give your benzodiazepines four to five minutes four hyphen five minutes to work. So our pathway, and I think CHOPS is probably the same, you give a dose of benzodiazepine, take your pick, midazolam, diazepam, lorazepam, doesn't matter, just choose. Give it five minutes to work. If it hasn't worked in five minutes, give a second dose. And meanwhile, start working on your second line agent, getting it ready. And then if they haven't stopped seizing at 10 minutes, then go with a second line agent. Is that what your pathway shows at uh, CHOP, Dennis? Yes. And, and in fact, it's, it's very clear also in bold that as your, for example, administer second lorazepam at the same time, you are ordering and preparing your next medication uh, so that you're not behind <clears throat> the eight ball uh, if the seizure doesn't stop. So they were, they were very clear on that. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, Dennis, you alluded to earlier that the potency of the benzos decreases as seizures go on. Why is that from a pathophysiology standpoint? Well, the the current theory uh, is that after a period of time with continued seizure activity, uh, the GABA receptors can actually either be internalized uh, away from the cell membrane or, or simply just become less responsive. Uh, so that, that's our current theory for why uh, early treatment works better than delayed treatment. And, and Dennis, is that also true for the second line anti-epileptic drugs? I'm not sure it is. I think it's less clear uh, if you get into, you know, phenytoin, a sodium channel drug or levetiracetam, an SV2 uh, drug. It's not as clear what's happening to those uh, targets with uh, pro more prolonged seizures. But I think anecdotally, even with those drugs, earlier treatment, uh, the hunches works better. So based on what both of you said, let me throw out this question. Should we give initial higher doses of the benzos instead of multiple smaller doses? And why should we or why shouldn't we? Jim? So one of the interesting things we noticed in the uh, ESET trial, the established status epilepticus treatment trial, was that uh, people had this uh, habit of giving small doses repeatedly rather than a single large dose. You know, you, you, you're walking a line here. You want to achieve a, um, a brain level 
uh, and a, a serum level reflects your brain level to some extent. So you wanna achieve a serum level that gets you into the therapeutic range to stop the seizures, but doesn't get you into the apneic range, right? Which is higher. So um, given the choice, if I'm gonna stop a seizure and then intubate someone versus not stop the seizure, I'd rather stop the seizure and intubate the patient. And we're going to talk more about that uh, when we talk about sort of cutting edge or future. Uh, so a good segue into second line drugs. Okay, so you've given a dose or two of a benzodiazepine, and uh, there are numerous studies in the literature, two of them specifically, the CONCEPT trial and the ECLIPSE trial, which compared phenytoin to levetiracetam, which we're going to call LEV, just for uh, ease of sake. Uh, and both of those studies showed that LEV was not superior to phenytoin. Jim, you alluded to the ESET trial. You were the lead author. Uh, tell us how uh, this differed from the two prior studies and what the results were. Yes. So the British study and the Australian New Zealand study uh, compared LEV to phenytoin because they don't have phosphenatoin there. So uh, the implications of that are going to be a little bit different in the United States where we have phosphenatoin. But uh, ESET was a three-arm trial. It was a trial of phosphenatoin versus LEV versus valproate. Uh, and we wanted to figure out which was the best and or worst of those three agents. And what were the results? So uh, disappointingly, they were all equivalent. <laughs> so in adults, uh, sorry, in the overall cohort of adults and children, it, they were about 47% effective at uh, stopping uh, at stopping the convulsions and having the patient wake up within an hour. In children, that rate was about 51%. Okay, so clinically speaking, one drug was not superior to the others. Do the results of this study, Jim, provide any evidence in support of LEV as a second-line drug? Because a lot of hospitals now are moving to that as their second-line drug. Well, certainly in uh, outside the United States, where phosphenatoin is not available, uh, LEV has a huge advantage in that it can be given over 10 minutes. It could probably even be pushed over five minutes. In contrast, phenytoin, you have to deliver over 18 to 20 minutes. So but you're introducing a delay in therapy. In the United States, uh, it's probably dealer's choice based on our results. Um, you want to avoid valproate in, in pregnant people. Uh, it's highly teratogenic. And you probably want to avoid it in very young children because of the possibility of an undiagnosed metabolic disorder. In fact, the FDA wouldn't allow us to go age less than two because of that for our study. Interestingly, we did find in, in looking at the pediatric subgroup only, intubation was more common in the phosphenatoin group than in the LEV group. So there's an additional potential benefit. We, we weren't anticipating that. We don't understand it. Phosphenatoin, to my knowledge, has not been shown to cause respiratory depression, but we did have that finding. LEV has some other advantages. You can rapidly convert to oral therapy on the inpatient units. Um, so I'd love to hear uh, Dennis's take on LEV versus phosphenatoin. Sure. So levetiracetam absolutely revolutionized uh, treatment of seizures, outpatient, ED, inpatient when it's when it was released. It's been around for about 20 years. And the thing with levetiracetam is it seems to be easy. 
it's quick and easy and any safety concerns wouldn't really be evident in an emergency room setting. Not everyone tolerates it long-term from a behavioral point of view, but uh, those don't manifest in the emergency room. So yeah, levetiracetam is very useful in many settings and not because it's clearly superior in terms of efficacy. And, and even direct-to-direct direct side effect profile management, it has its ups and downs. It's just easy. And often easy is better. Uh, let's move forward. Second line drug administered, and you have the pros and cons of each of the drugs that we talked about. Uh, let's assume the patient continues to seize, and we're now on third line drugs. Uh, Jim, do you use a different second line drug or any uh, thought about repeating a dose of the drug that you used initially for second line therapy? Yeah, so I don't think we have good evidence on this, Bob. We, uh, some people will give, uh, you know, if they've given phosphenatoin 20 per kilo, they might give another 5 or 10 per kilo. Uh, some people will cross over. If they've given phosphenatoin, they'll go with levetiracetam, sorry, uh, reasoning that uh, they work by different mechanisms. So maybe, you know, attacking through a different mechanism might stop your status faster. But to my knowledge, we don't really have a good sense of what we're supposed to do after our second line fails. Dennis, again, as a member of the pathway team, uh, any recommendations, third line, uh, re repeat the second line or uh, choose a different second line drug as your third line drug? Typically, we choose a second, uh, a different drug, third line. Now, the for phenytoin or phosphenytoin, the, the dose a given first time was 25 mg per kg. For, for LEV, we have ongoing debates about it. should it be 50 per kilo, 60 per kilo, 80 per kilo. But just like we talked about with the benzos earlier, like give a, give a substantial dose first time. And having done that, then we would use an alternate drug. Or in our pathway, valproate comes in as uh, an option in for the uh, third medication. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, let's sort of shift gears now and talk about current or even future research in status epilepticus. I think we're all in agreement. Long seizures are bad. They're harder to stop for the reasons that you mentioned. There's increased risk of cerebral hypoperfusion, hypoglycemia, hypoxia, brain damage. Uh, Jim, you alluded to percentages. We know that the second line drugs may be 50% efficacy uh, among each of the drugs. Should we be advocating a more aggressive approach? What I mean by that is any role early on, maybe as far as second line for propofol, ketamine, or maybe combining propofol with one of the conventional second line drugs. Dennis, you want to take that one? It's a very important clinical question, and boy, would it be difficult to answer definitively in a clinical trial because you know, we, we haven't talked much recently in the podcast about etiology, but, you know, what's going to drive the outcome? Well, it sure, we'd like to think earlier treatment works better, but then there's, well, what's causing this? So the trial would have to either in real time or, or go back and figure out etiology and then figure out what that, what difference that made. And it probably makes a big difference. So important questions, but boy, will they be hard to study. Right. And uh, you alluded to, Jim, we don't know the etiology in most cases when they come into the ED. Uh, would you advocate as a researcher looking at a more aggressive approach, at least studying that? Yeah, we're actually uh, designing a study now. And it, it stems from this 15% that we're 
failing to to reach is this is this a ceiling effect is this the best we're going to do because as dennis mentioned the etiology is a big part of it or can we do better so so the pre-hospital folks are are a little bit ahead of us on this they they've started to use ketamine in the pre-hospital arena for agitation and from that now they've started to use it for status epilepticus and there's been some limited success some some case series demonstrating a good efficacy with ketamine. So we are going to propose to FDA and NIH a clinical trial of uh, three arms. And this is similar to ESET. It's for patients who fail benzodiazepines. So one arm will be levetiracetam alone, 60 per kilo, as we did with ESET. One will be levetiracetam plus one milligram per kilogram of ketamine. And a third arm will be three milligrams per kilogram of ketamine with the levetiracetam. And we're hoping that by co-administering the NMDA receptor agent ketamine, that we will have more success at stopping seizures. I'd love to hear Dennis's uh, thoughts on that study. Oh, I think that's a terrific idea. Focusing on those, the early time points, I think would be much more fruitful clinically, uh, much more feasible from a clinical trial point of view. Uh, yeah, I I agree that that is much more fertile ground than trying to sort out what you do with the fourth or fifth uh, medication. And many of these patients who have failed either first or second line therapy will go on to develop refractory status. Then, as you alluded to, they have a much worse outcome. Uh, the CHOP pathway that you helped put together talks about midazolam infusions, pentobarb infusions, or propofol for refractory status epilepticus, a little bit outside the ER. But what diagnoses, not necessarily that we need to consider in the ED, but in the ICU, what diagnoses uh, should you be considering in these patients with refractory status? Uh, and I'd also add add ketamine to the list of, of options for refractory status in addition to the ones you mentioned. Well, still the most common diagnosis is either unknown or just a flare of known epilepsy for unclear reasons. Uh, more concerning uh, diagnoses, uh, of course, would be uh, head trauma uh, or uh, CNS infection. Uh, and then there is the uh, no longer new but very vexing area of autoimmune uh, status epilepticus. There are very complicated interactions between the immune system and the brain, and sometimes things go off chart, and uh, you can have essentially refractory status on an autoimmune basis. We're getting better at diagnosing that, and then the treatment is completely different. It's uh, immunosuppressants and immunomodulatory agents. Any role for therapeutic hypothermia in these patients, Dennis, in the ICU setting? To my knowledge, outside of the neonatal uh, population, uh, that has, I'm not familiar with, with its utility, but I, that could just be my uh, limitations uh, in not keeping up on that point. And you alluded to the neonatal population. So again, we don't usually see one or two days in the ED, but we see children up to the age of 30 days, uh, and we would classify that as neonatal seizures. Again, the pathway doesn't really touch upon the first 30 days. Dennis, again, conventional therapy, benzodiazepines first line, or a different therapeutic approach to the child or the infant less than 30 days who presents with seizures? Uh, well, certainly you, uh, the quick search for etiology is, is, is very important in those kids, the glucose and, and other electrolytes. 
it's uh, it's really unknown territory what to do with uh, neonatal seizures. So I think we have very little evidence to guide us other than in the nursery, phenytone and phenobarbital both work about 50% of the time and maybe levetiracetam is similar. But in an, in an ER setting, I think it's, uh, you know, we have the drugs, it's the same drugs, it's just a risk benefit decision about the situation and monitor them closely. So I can't really say whether it would be, you know, benzos first or go right to phenytoin or lev and skip the benzos. I'd actually be interested to what Jim would do in a 20-day-old who is comes in in, quote, status. I would go with the same route uh, that we would normally go. I, I have heard anecdotally from our neurologists that they think that phenobarbital may work better in, in young babies than, let's say, uh, phosphenatoin. But I don't have phenobarbital at my fingertips, and I probably wouldn't use it. In the ED, we see, Jim and I see a lot of patients who have had a seizure at home and come in briefly post-ictal and then look very well in the ED, or they come in in status, and as Jim alluded to, got intramuscular midazolam, stop the seizure, they wake up, they look great, nothing suspicious on the history or physical exam, and uh, we touch base with neurology from the ER, and we discharge them with neurology follow-up. Dennis, why don't you educate not only Jim and I, but also our listeners, what is the sort of the workup or the thought process in many of these patients who get sent home after having a first-time seizure in the ED? So the uh, the literature on the first unprovoked seizure in childhood, and I'll, I'll assume that this was not a febrile seizure, but it was an unprovoked seizure is that the two to five year recurrence rate, meaning their chances of having a second unprovoked seizure, ranges from 20 to greater than 80%, depending on the circumstances. So the best case situation is a child with typical development has a first time seizure while awake, and then down the road, if they have a normal EEG, they have a 20% chance of having a second seizure. So that, so seizure rescue therapy would be important for the family in case it does happen, but we are not typically interested in starting daily anti-seizure medications. And uh, yeah, what, what, um, so the, I think that's appropriate to, you know, uh, make sure they're stable in the ED and we'll see them in the office. Uh, it's hard for families. It's, it's brutal for families, but um, we don't really want to jump too soon to start daily anti-seizure medications because they all have side effects. I think we covered a lot of topics. Uh, why don't we conclude? Jim, any final thoughts, any take-home points for our listeners from an ED standpoint uh, in the management of status epilepticus? Sure. So I would say uh, don't be afraid of giving adequate doses of benzodiazepines. Don't give small repeated doses. Give a, a good dose uh, as written in your pathways. Have a stepwise approach. Be ready with a clock in the room so you know in five minutes so you can go to the next step. I would say that intubation is not in itself a horrible outcome. In this day and age, we're pretty good with our critical care and we're pretty good at intubating children. So I'd rather have them intubated and stop seizing than continue to seize. And then don't forget your glucose and sodium. That Those are key. You got to do that at the bedside and get the answer back immediately. Great. Dennis, final thoughts? Uh, I'd say that, that this podcast and the pathways that our institutions have are wonderful examples of collaborating across fields. Uh, it's it's so uh, important and refreshing to have neurologists, ED docs, ICU docs 
uh, talk to each other, work with each other. You know, we can learn so much from each other and uh, uh, for the benefit of our patients. And that's, that's great to see. Well, Dennis and Jim, on behalf of Meg and the entire Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast team, I want to thank you both for sharing your expert knowledge on status epilepticus with our listeners. We would love to have you back on uh, a future podcast uh, if the topic matches your area of expertise. Thank you again, Jim and Dennis. Thank you. Thank you.